Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So, for, for those of you who are listening, which is all of you, because this is a podcast, I'd like to tell you that a horrible injustice has occurred which is that the fragile equilibrium under which RATSEC 2.0 has operated, which is that we all sit in our sad home offices and all zoom in or Zencaster in has been ended. And now uh, Scott and Quinta, who clearly think that they are better than me because they live in DC, are sitting literally next to each other in the Brookings studio. And I am still here in Minnesota feeling alone and sorry for myself. How dare you? <laughs> Alan, I don't know what to tell you. You, uh, you know, are no longer uh, welcome uh, IRL on equal terms. You're no longer the lowest common denominator for this podcast. You're just the lowest denominator. Yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> Apologies. Okay, that's pretty good, actually. It's yeah. not, not usually an arithmetic burn, uh, but uh, yeah. But here we are. Here we are. I'll take it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, coming at you in what I assume is velvety, buttery tones of a professional studio, where I'm excited to be located with one of my co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. But not my other co-host, <laughs> Alan Rosenstein. Yeah, screw, screw that guy. I just I would like to say that you can have a, a rich and buttery and velvety tone, even if you're not in a professional studio. Your tone is strictly margarine. <laughs> your tone is your tone is. I can't believe it's not. Butter. I was just That's about to make is. the same joke. Wow! Open season on Alan today. Okay, okay. I see how it is. This is this is because we're together. We're we're ganging up on. This you. is what I was afraid of. This is exactly what I was afraid of. <laughs> Listeners, please please uh, tweet at us and tell uh, tell Quinta and Scott to go back to their sad home office holes, so that we're all in our own sad home I office. I don't know holes. why you're being so mean about my home office. <laughs> Quinta's home office is the most presentable of all of ours. Thank you. Yours is secondary. I put a lot of work into it. Mine is quite embarrassing because the desk I bought is too small for me. So it sits behind me in my camera frame <laughs> uh, because the monitor did not fit on the desk. So instead, I'm on a fold-out table with a whole other desk behind me. So don't do a lot of TV appearances from that room, but that's okay. I just like the uh, the Peloton with like dirty exercise clothing draped over it in the background There is never once been dirty <laughs> exercise clothing on that bike. I'm meticulous about the laundry. The room is clean. It's just got a lot of crap in it, but it is clean. See, I put all my crap out of camera view. That's Framed my secret. Perfectly. Yeah, exactly. I lived above a guy in law school who would drape velvet cloth over piles of clothes that he didn't want to clean in his room. So you went into his room and you felt like you were on the most sensual stage of the filming of like the lunar landing or something there's just black velvet draped all for piles of luxury clothes they didn't want to wash ladies and gentlemen the yale law school <laughs> the yale law school <laughs> that it may be one of the more indicative uh you know stories about the yale law school i've ever told uh but there you go um regardless i am excited to be here with both of you for what we are calling in honor of our new arrangement, the Exile on Allen Street edition of Rational <laughs> Security. Um, because, of course, despite our distance from one of our co-hosts, but not from all of our co-hosts, it has been a big week in national security news. And we are excited to be here to talk it over with you, the listeners. Topic one for this week, a sense of doom in Khartoum. An armed conflict between two rival military factions has broken out in Sudan. The United States and other major powers have evacuated their embassies, but numerous foreign nationals remain trapped on the ground along with Sudanese civilians. How should the international community respond? Topic two, tuck around and find out. Big hat tip to our associate editor, editor Catherine Pompilio, for that one, which was a winner. Thank you for your so service good. on the in-office so Thank you. We salute you <laughs> in, in a perfect patriotic form. Tucker Carlson is out at Fox News, having been summarily dismissed this past Friday with little fanfare. Whether this is a response to the Dominion settlement or something else remains a mystery. What does his departure mean for the media landscape? 
And topic three, he was just biding his time. Uh, Thank you. There's no audible <laughs> crickets here. President Biden has finally confirmed what we all suspected, that he is running for re-election. How will national security fit into his candidacy and the election to follow? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So a little less than two weeks ago, uh, fighting broke out between two parts of Sudan's military. On one side is Sudan's army, headed by General Abdel Fattah al-Buran. And on the other side is the paramilitary, quote, rapid support forces, which is at this point definitely not a part of Sudan's military. And that is headed by Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo. And apologies if I did not pronounce those exactly right. The background to the conflict is uh, quite complex, but it ultimately boils down to what happened in 2019 when Sudan's long-term dictator Omar al-Bashir was ousted by a military coup. Uh, Now, that coup was itself led by generals al-Buran and Dagalo, uh, and they were supposed to oversee a transition to a democratic civilian government, but that all went out of the window quite quickly, as often happens with military coups. And these two are basically just fighting each other at this point, over uh, which military regime will control Sudan. At this point, uh, more than 400 people have already died in Khartoum, which is the capital city, uh, and there's no indication that the fighting is going to stop anytime soon. So, uh, as is our want when we talk about foreign policy topics, let me turn to you, Scott, uh, and just give us a sense of perspective. Just how serious of a situation is this, both for Sudan and for the, the broader region? So it's definitely a serious situation for Sudan, to say the least. Sudan, a country that has been through a great deal of unrest. Uh, you know, you noted that since 2019, we've seen a major transition, the ouster of Omar al-Bashir, the kind of longstanding dictator of the country for many years, ousted in 2019. Now this kind of chaotic mixture of civilian institutions and military coup d'etat, essentially, that's been governing the country since then. But that is really just the latest phase of what has been a difficult process. Remember, we saw Sudan go through the difficult separation in many ways with what is now the country of South Sudan over the last 20 years. Uh, We've also seen over – in about the same time frame, a greater conflict over the region of Darfur, which in a lot of ways was just representative of a broader systematic trend where we saw actually one of the parties involved in this, the what was then often known as the Jean-Jouid, now kind of converted into a much more formalized military force, at least in concept, if not in an actual fact, in the RSF force, be involved in suppressing kind of pseudo-independence movements slash different cultural and religious minorities in different parts of Sudan with pretty violent, horrendous tactics and what a lot of people consider to be a genocide throughout the 2000s. So Sudan's a country that's been through a lot of unrest, and this isn't unusual for it in some degree in in terms of it's another phase of violence. But this is a unique one because it's in the middle of the city of Khartoum, uh, whereas violence has been in many cases uh, kind of focused, uh, particularly earlier uh, before Bashir was ousted on the outer parts of the country. And it has ramifications region-wide. We already know that at least 10,000 people fleeing this violence uh, have arrived in South Sudan, a country that is plagued by its own problems, its own unrest, its own internal combat, and that is facing a pretty dire um, rainy season, which uh, I know humanitarian workers have been preparing for and are now dealing with uh, an influx of refugees, essentially, on top of the already really difficult circumstances the country is ready to face. And that's not unique. Other people in the region, other Sudanese have fled to other areas in the region. And so it is very dangerous. The fact that you see the United States evacuate its embassy uh, personnel is is maybe one of the clear indicators of that. That's a pretty severe move. Um, It's not something that the United States takes lightly um, or that other embassies take lightly. And the fact that you saw them kind of coordinate when they decided to do it underscores the degree of coordination that happens often between missions, particularly missions of like loosely allied or at least friendly countries. They often coordinate, share intelligence uh, and share uh, kind of decision making to some extent saying, all right, we are all agree. We got to get people out of here. Let's go ahead and do it. And so you saw a number of governments reach that conclusion over the last week. Uh, again, you know, these are embassies that were already operating in pretty secure circumstances. Um, they're already used to threats and violence. Uh, I have no doubt they were hardened facilities uh, and probably had plenty of security personnel and secure vehicles. And nonetheless, they felt it was appropriate to evacuate all their personnel. That's not a good sign in terms of the direction the conflict is headed. So the New York Times ran an interesting guest essay about the situation in in Sudan that has the provocative title, The Violence in Sudan is Partly Our Fault. 
It's by Jacqueline Burns, who is a former advisor to the U.S. Special Envoy for Sudan and South Sudan, and I believe is is currently at RAND. And her argument is essentially that the the U.S. and international organizations helped kind of create this situation by focusing over much on peacemaking by getting armed groups to kind of lay down their weapons. And that this focus led to a, a, a situation where there was way too much weight put on the value of getting these armed groups to cooperate. And that as a result, there was sort of too little attention paid to the sort of the underlying politics of the situation, the underlying needs of people in Sudan, um, and the underlying tensions between these armed groups never actually were resolved, as we see now, because they are fighting again. So I thought that this was a interesting and, and maybe provocative take. Scott, I don't know if you have any thoughts about it. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of an interesting view. There is this big focus in terms of how we often engage, we mean the international community, engage in the kind of ceasefire arrangements where there is a natural inclination for strategic and for political reasons, particularly if you're coming from the UN, as, as many of these efforts do come from, to treat the different parties with a degree of parity, to try and say, OK, everybody put your arms down. We're going to approach this as equal. And that makes sense to a certain degree. You're saying, OK, well, we need to get everyone to play along. If we don't treat people like equals, it's less likely they're going to agree to the sort of arrangement. But it underscores the fact that, you know, you're stabilizing a status quo. Um, and that status quo is one that might not ultimately lead to peace in the long run or any of the other goals the international community may, may be working towards, better respect for human rights, uh, democratic government, things like that. Uh, and so I, th- I think there's something to that. At, at the same time, I, I also think there is a strong inclination after you see these international crises for people to um, write analyses looking back and saying, oh, if this one thing had been done differently, this outcome would come out different. That's a very useful exercise. I don't I don't want to diminish any of that writing, including this piece on that. It, you have to go back and do these counterfactuals and say, oh, things are different. But I also wouldn't over rely on the idea of just one factor being the thing that swung the outcome one direction or another. A lot of factors are pushing this direction, a lot of factors that some of which are in the control of the international community and others on the outside, a lot of which are not, a lot of which hinge on the decisions of specific decision makers. That doesn't mean you can't do anything about it. doesn't mean you shouldn't learn from the experience. But I also think we have to you know, look backwards a little bit of hubris acknowledging that causation is a much more complicated enterprise um, even when we're looking back and have a little more complete set of facts than we might have in other circumstances. And it's also worth the the usual reminder that um, op-ed writers don't do not usually get to pick the title of their uh, Very of their of their essay. So the the title, the violence in Sudan, is partly our fault. But it does a say partly. Of, uh, yeah, no, but I'm 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 saying I think I think the uh, the op-ed is perhaps a little bit more nuanced than the uh, than the clicky title suggests. They said partly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's new. What's what? What's not nuanced, if not that? <laughs> Look, you only have you only have so many words. I mean, I also think it's worth noting that um, there have been reports of widespread internet outages across the country, which is um, really concerning insofar as it obviously limits ability the ability of people inside the country to communicate with each other, but also to communicate to the outside world what's happening. And I believe that the internet is back on now, maybe, but there were there was a period of days when it was basically completely gone. Well, and it poses a real challenge as well to national governments that still have nationals on the ground. We have to bear in mind the United States, uh, a number of other countries, the UK, a number of European governments have evacuated their embassy staff uh, and families if they had families there. Although I believe they probably did not at this point as families are usually evacuated at a far earlier phase of uh, of any sort of conflict and a lot of posts don't allow families there. Um, but regardless, U.S. government employees have been evacuated. But U.S. nationals are still very much on the ground. Uh, and this is always a really difficult issue for the State Department and frankly other foreign governments or foreign ministries and foreign governments to approach. Because you want to be there and assist your nationals, um, people who are visiting there, people who are joint nationals and living there. You want to find ways to support them and get them safe. At the same time, you also don't want to create moral hazard where you have people waiting in a situation longer than is advisable. Um, I would have to go back and check, but I suspect that we've had travel warnings to Sudan for a while now uh, saying, hey, don't come here because since at least since 2019 and particularly since 21, 2021, 2022, it's been a pretty bad situation. 
and it's been pretty evident to people it is headed in a bad direction. And usually that's a situation where the State Department says, hey, Americans, stop traveling here, please. And a lot of Americans do it anyway. And they do it anyway because they have family there. They do it anyway because relationship. They do it anyway because, frankly, the State Department is very quick to say stop traveling to this place and lose a little credibility um, by being a little more general about that. So it, it's this difficult balancing act for the State Department to say, we want to provide services, we can't guarantee them, because that creates this moral hazard, this instinct for people to say, well, I know the Marines are going to come knock down and, and evac me um, the moment we really hit the situation here. So we can't, we can't, I, I can push the envelope further than I might have otherwise. And the truth is that's not an option, right? The United States can do a lot to evacuate people. They do make a really deliberate effort, but it's often a quiet, careful you know, uh, selective process of strategically communicating and coordinating people. That's really hard to execute in the best of circumstances, particularly in circumstances like this is a huge logistical challenge. And that's what I suspect um, they're working on now. And it gets even harder when you evacuate your embassy staff because you no longer have people on the ground. You probably still have some kind of contractors. You might have a couple, handful of personnel, but not a lot of people. Um, and so uh, it's a really difficult enterprise. Uh, and I don't envy the diplomats that are that are making that effort right now. Well, so so I, I guess let's turn to sort of what happens next. Um, I mean, is there anything that the United States can or should or can be expected to usefully do? Or is this just going to spiral into whatever it spirals into? And if it becomes a civil war, then it's going to be a civil war. And there's not very much that we can do to prevent that. Can I, can I actually add a question onto that? I mean, one thing that I've been thinking about is as soon as you talk about evacuating embassies, getting American citizens out, uh, the echoes to the Afghanistan withdrawal feel very present, although obviously the situation is a, is a different one. There hasn't been nearly as much sort of public attention focused on Sudan just because there are a lot of reasons, but it, it has less of a hold on the American uh, imagination since we haven't been at war there for two decades. But certainly I would imagine that the Biden administration would, is probably really feeling the pressure not to screw this up. Um, and not to leave people behind and sort of create the impression of, well, the deserved impression of chaos, frankly, um, that took place during the Afghanistan withdrawal. So I do wonder to what extent, rightly or wrongly, that might be shaping their approach here. I don't know what you think about that, Scott. It's certainly possible. Um, and I think I, I suspect that was part, maybe a part of the impetus, particularly to evacuate the embassy, because that's where you clearly have U.S. personnel you know, I'd be curious to see a breakdown of what nationals are believed to be there. I suspect a lot of them are dual nationals. Um, now, that doesn't mean that they're any less valued or any less effort needs should be expended to keep them safe. That's absolutely not the case. Um, but it does mean that it's just a more complicated picture. A lot of dual nationals, as with Afghanistan, are hesitant to leave for whatever reasons they don't want to leave, um, at least right away, because they have family members and other people that don't qualify for the same level of treatment. Now, maybe that's something the United States should reconsider. But um, if you start taking extended family members and things like that, then the number of people you have to evacuate get, gets way, way larger. Um, so it really is a really difficult balancing act. And you're never going to get a 100% satisfactory answer. All you can really do is try and you know enter in and make a coordinated effort. That said, you know, you're right. They're going to want to look responsive to this. Um, but a lot of the responsiveness has to be kept quiet because if you're making very open public overtures, that can make you a target in some ways or it can make things more complicated, can bring Americans out in a way that makes them vulnerable. So, uh, you know, it is really a difficult enterprise here. In terms of what can be done, you know, next, what we expect to see, you know, we're going to see, we saw a call for a ceasefire that was kind of nominally accepted, but then kind of fell apart, uh, or at least it wasn't as effective as people had hoped for the last 72 hours or so. I think it ended yesterday, if I remember correctly. You know, we're going to see more calls for this, at least as people try and bring humanitarian assistance to civilians, try and evacuate civilians from Khartoum or give them the opportunity to leave Khartoum which appears to be a big focus of the conflict so they can get to other parts of the country, become you know internally displaced peoples or refugees. It, it is a real problem. And then you have this refugee problem that's going to emerge about a lot of thousands of people being displaced. And that's going to last as long as the conflict lasts uh, or seems likely to, to reignite. Sadly, they're like not unfamiliar problems, uh, it, whether in Africa or in other parts of the world or to the international community. Um, but they are all real problems that you have to tackle. And it's hard to tackle any of them while there's still the conflict going on. And that's the drive for the ceasefire. That is the instinct that this op-ed, I think, criticizes, again, for good reasons in a lot of ways. But you understand the incentive behind it. If you don't have a secure environment, 
you can't deliver humanitarian assistance reliably or allow people to evacuate. And that's why there is this constant push for ceasefires and then trying to build political solutions on top of the ceasefires that do inevitably kind of ensconce a political status quo because everybody's putting down their guns. They're not fighting over. So everybody kind of sits on the the lines that they've, they're inhabiting. Yeah. Well, another question I have is, is whether or not this is going to be primarily America's role to play or, or America and Europe's role to play or, whether this might be an opportunity for China, which has had some notable diplomatic successes and obviously has had a lot of investment and engagement with with Africa as part of the Belt and Road Initiative and gets a ton of oil from Sudan and therefore obviously has some sort of clear material reasons to care, uh, whether or not this is going to be an opportunity for China to show that it can be the sort of useful diplomatic superpower or whether China will decide that, you know, this is too hard and and maybe it doesn't want to play that role. But I think it'll be an interesting test case uh, for, for Chinese diplomacy going forward, but we will see. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, you know, we had this discussion about the Saudi-Iran deal that China kind of helped facilitate on the Lawfare podcast a week or two ago. And, you know, a point away from that that kind of I've taken away from it is really that this doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. There's a lot of corners of the world where both China and the United States share interests. Uh, and I suspect this is one of them. I don't think either of them is particularly delighted to see uh, Sudan dissolve into internal conflict, um, if that is indeed what's about to happen, as, as it looks like it is. So this could be a great place for Chinese diplomacy. I don't think China usually plays this role, though. Um, they're not necessarily equipped or, or used to doing it. doesn't mean they can't um, if they want to. Um, and maybe this is a role they'll fill in, and that's something that some people will find threatening to the United States and Europe and other countries that are a little more active. But I, I suspect that the United States and Europe might Ultimately, it might benefit them because you've got more actors kind of reinforcing it with a different set of actors re- with relationships with China as opposed to with the West. A lot of this legwork also is done through the UN system. And the UN system is like staffed a lot by a lot of Europeans and people from other parts of the world. You know, you often see a lot of Dutch names. Uh, uh, I think of most of the UN officials I was seeing in this seem to be Dutch for whatever reason or have Dutch names. But, the, you know, the key point here is though the UN really is this kind of independent body. And it's got a really hard job because it's balancing not just the equities of the people on the ground, the faction on the ground, but then the international community and the different member states that are driving its policy and often have their own equities, um, even a situation as diverse as this. But they do essential work because that gives them that that the fact that they are kind of independent and frankly a little bit weak uh, in terms of the conventional metrics of power makes them credible as a kind of interlocutor to facilitate these sorts of discussions and allows them to go places where other countries can't and have conversations with other people can't. That facilitative role is really important. Uh, we're about to see, hopefully, the UN have some luck uh, showing that again, even if it doesn't you know, lead to the resolution of this problem. Well, speaking of ousters, let us turn <laughs> nice. to nice. our own U.S. media landscape where we have seen Actually, more than one ouster uh, in the past week or two, to a particular note, uh, although there are, have been other ones we can pull in the conversation as well. The big one is, of course, Tucker Carlson. He of the bow tie once, no, not recently, I suppose, but I still think of him as in a bow tie when I think of him, who has been one of the biggest, most successful audience garnering hosts on Fox News, uh, infamous for catering to a variety of conspiracy theories and racist tropes, among other items. Most recently, notorious for having shared a bunch of texts and messages with colleagues about how he didn't really believe uh, former President Trump's claims about stealing the 2020 election, but nonetheless was echoing them on Fox News on his show as other people were at Fox News that ultimately contributed to the settlement between Fox News and Dominion Voting Systems last week, the recordly large settlement for defamation claim. On Friday, he appears or sometime between Friday and Monday, he appears to have been fired without much ado about it by the Fox News Corporation. He was not given the opportunity to say goodbye or to do a farewell show. He was just summarily replaced by another media personality at Fox News in his hour. And they say they are figuring out what they're going to do with the show moving forward. So Quinta, as our probably closest media watcher, uh, media insider, what is your sense about what this removal appears to be signaling in terms of how Fox News is thinking of its role in the media landscape and what the ramifications of that could be? I got to say, I have no idea. And at first I felt dumb because of that. But I've now seen Ben Smith tweet that he has no idea. um, And Brian Stelter, who 
wrote a book about Fox News, is currently writing another book about Fox News and has reported on the network for years and years and years. They have both said that they don't really know what's going on. So is Peter Kafka of the Recode podcast, another media watcher. I believe David Fulkenflick of NPR may have said the same thing. So basically, nobody knows what the hell is going on. Um, The stated reasons for the firing are many and varied. And I think that they kind of add up to he was a jerk. So in the text messages that were unearthed as part of the Dominion discovery process, apparently there's material in there that was redacted uh, so that the public has not yet seen, but includes him uh, talking smack about his superiors at Fox. Uh, there's been a lot of reporting about tensions between him and kind of the rest of the Fox brass that he was kind of operating his own independent fiefdom and that rubbed people the wrong way. Um, He apparently has a long habit of calling women various slurs, so that's nice, and created a hostile work environment. There's a current lawsuit against him by Abby Grossberg, a producer at the network, um, who also features prominently in the Dominion uh, filings. So I think it's, there's just a lot. I mean, I will say for me personally, none of it fully makes sense because everything that I just said was equally true of him six months ago. Um, And it's not obvious to me why if you're Lachlan Murdoch, you wake up on Friday um, and say, you know what, today is going to be the day that I'm going to can this guy. It's also the case that they really, I think Brian Stelter described it as an execution that Tucker signed off on Friday saying we'll be back on Monday Uh, It seems like he had no idea what was about to happen until it did. Um, He has not made a public statement, at least as by the time that we started recording, unlike Don Lemon, (laughs) um, who who tweeted, I don't even know what he tweeted, but he he tweeted something I write. So all of this really seems like it was unexpected and sudden. And I... Maybe not a direct outgrowth of the Dominion litigation, but connected to it at the same time, you know, it it doesn't really it doesn't seem to me like the Murdochs, you know, suddenly woke up and realized like, oh, my God, Tucker Carlson is hurting America. Right. Like, that's just not what is what happened here. I think it's fair to say that Tucker is a uniquely malignant presence or was a uniquely malignant presence on on cable news. Anyone who has that slot is going to be, the APM slot on Fox is going to be very, very influential. But he really took it in a whole new direction. And so I think him being off the air is probably a good thing. But I don't know if it signals a walk back from the brink for Fox, right? I think we'll have to kind of wait and see. Look, I I think it's obvious that what happened was that folks at Fox realized that testicle tanning does not work. And that that was ultimately just what was too far. They, they Did felt, you do a they segment felt, on that? Oh in, my God, are you serious? I don't. I can't keep track, man. There are too many. His his last segment was about eating bugs. Oh my no! This was this was this was. I think this. I think this was peak peak Tucker, right? Because Tucker's whole thing was 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 not just you know whatever you know complaint about lefty politics du jour it was part of this like broad question of you know the role of white guys in american society and the decline of testosterone and then he brought this guy on whose solution was testicle tanning and stuff i can't believe you missed that that was like that was peak tucker and then the next week he was selling testicle aloe (laughs) it was was a clever scheme tucker (laughs) but your days are numbered it's capitalism man first you create a problem and then you solve it um there you go yeah i mean look i i I agree with you quinta that it's probably a good thing on net that he's off the air he he sucks first of all i will also just say back to your sort of original crack scott about uh the bow ties i am delighted that he stopped wearing bow ties because as someone who likes to wear bow ties unironically i am glad that uh i'm you know there's no such thing as unironically they're so good they're so good they're coming back man yeah, I, I think the yeah, I, I think the the problem is there's just there's no reason to think that Tucker, despite his obvious talent, I mean he was very talented at what he did. I think that's fair to say whether you liked him or not. I don't think he was like a once in a generation talent. I don't think there was something anything all like all that interesting about him, right? You know, I, I I don't think you know. Obviously, I think I think there's a tendency to think that you know Tucker is to media what. Trump was to politics. And I actually don't think that's correct. I I think that Trump really was and really is a more unique uh, force that is harder to replace. Whereas I think Tucker is, you know, he's fine at what he did. Um, But Fox will have no problem finding someone who says 
equally racist and sexist and inflammatory things. And as long as they can just maybe do a little less uh, sexual harassing and hostile workplacing and HR violating, that will be fine. I mean, there's an interesting question about whether or not the sorts of people that are willing to go on air and talk about the great replacement are uh, also people who will tend to uh, have HR violations that the correlation there is probably, you know, greater than zero, but I, I wouldn't be too optimistic that this really says anything about um, the direction of Fox or the conservative media um, ecosystem, because there is plenty of crazy, offensive, harmful things you can say without outright lying in a way that causes, you know, billion dollar defamation suits uh, or that creates giant HR problems that in a post Roger Ailes world, even a place like Fox can no longer ignore. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So I don't disagree with that, but I do think there's a little bit more to the Tucker phenomenon, right? That is worth thinking about that I do think is indicative, but I, although I tend to agree with your conclusion that you both have espoused that this means that this is probably not a, a pivot moment, right? And that's that Tucker Carlson isn't the first Tucker Carlson. He's at least the third, right? So we have Bill O'Reilly and we have Glenn Beck, both of whom at different points of the last, what, 15, 20 years have played a really similar central role in terms of being the big face of Fox News. And I read, I got this from, I can't remember, I think a New York Times column, but they also threw Megyn Kelly in the same bucket, which strikes me as not <laughs> quite the same thing. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not including Megyn in this, but I'm going to talk about Glenn Beck and Bill O'Reilly, who were these you know really, really central figures, built up these huge cults of personality, um, really were emulated, were carving paths that you saw other people in media want to go down. You look what happened with Lou Dobbs, right, who went from being like a fairly conventional TV anchor on CNN and has gravitated in this weirder and weirder direction in part because it's driven by what I suspect to be a combination of ego and market incentives because there's just a giant audience for this type of stuff. And so Fox News has, you know, got rid of Bill O'Reilly when he became too problematic for sexual harassment, a variety of other things. I can't remember the circumstances under which they canned Glenn Beck, but they did. Who then had a weird second, you know, revival as like a surprisingly like you know progressive minded on certain issues kind of yeah, guy. Yeah, now we're in the third wave of Glenn Beck. Yeah, the, exactly. The Beck retrenchment. Glenn Beck with a with a scarf on. Um, and so it is like a it it's it's these figures that are drawn to get this audience. And so it's indicative both. I think a which was the thesis I'm borrowing from this column that I can't remember what it is. So apologies to the author, which is that Fox News thinks of itself as the star, and it occasionally just summarily executes these guys because it needs to underscore we're the boss and we drive this audience, not these figures. And when they get a little bit high on the hog, eventually they become too big a hassle and we let them go. And it sense is that that is a good explainer here because Tucker certainly was being a real jerk and a real problem around the 2020 election call, right? Like he was being an agitator within the organization, questioning management. And it sounds like there was a lot more of that stuff than what actually came out during the Dominion trial. But the other part of it is that, you know, Fox News, despite having consistent problems with these guys, keeps drifting in their direction. And it keeps creating a forum that creates economic incentives to drift people in this direction, right? The real difference now is that now you have InfoWars and you have Newsmax and these other venues that are polling from the same audience. And so maybe there's this question of Fox News competing with them or not competing with them. Maybe that denotes a different trajectory. But all the incentives are still there. And it's really – it's the audience driving us. Right? It's an audience that wants to hear things like this, that we're pulling people in this direction. 
And I don't think, you know, in terms of the cause and effect cycle, certainly Fox News is contributing and helping to amplify that audience. But I don't think it's causing it. In a lot of ways, I think the audience is, is causing the Fox News effect. Yeah, so a couple a couple points there. I think that your point that this is a demand side issue is important and is actually a lot of what um, what became Dominion's argument um, in its filings in the case is that Fox was responding to viewer demand essentially and becoming crazier and crazier. At the same time, I think it's it's worth maybe complicating that story a little bit about so Bill O'Reilly. So I just double checked. So Bill O'Reilly was forced out at Fox in 2017 because of sexual harassment issues. That was after Roger Ailes left um, in his own pretty awful sexual harassment scandal in 2016. And all of so much of this is like Fox Kremlinology. Like you have to know the particular figures and their particular quirks. But my impression is that a lot of, you know, Fox under Ailes was a horrible place to work, but it was like he was in control, right? Like that there was an editorial, you know, he he could keep people from going too far. And that that was what happened. Um, and perhaps why Bill O'Reilly didn't go nearly as far as Tucker did. O'Reilly was forced out not because he went too far, but because he no longer had a protector against sexual harassment allegations. Um, Then in the kind of the Tucker era, Ailes uh, is no longer there. He's left the network. Um, he, He died after that. And so there's not the same kind of like top down control is my impression. Suzanne Scott, who's sort of the person who took over Ailes's role is not my understanding is that was not nearly as a present a force in the newsroom. And so Tucker was able to kind of create his own fiefdom in a way that other Fox hosts hadn't been and was able to kind of build up his own editorial power and go bananas, essentially. And an interesting quirk is, you know, to ask, you can ask yourself, like, would the 2020 stuff have happened if Ailes was still there? I don't know. Brian Stelter suggested that it might not have because Ailes was able to kind of exert that editorial control. And so I do wonder whether the outcome of this might be kind of, Ellen, as you were saying, like, not a better fox, but a fox, a fox that identifies some kind of line and stays on the correct side of it, even though that line is presumably going to be like way, 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 way past what any of us would like to see, but perhaps not going so far as to become overtly white nationalist. Um, but I don't know, right? I mean, it's anyone's guess. Well, I, I mean, why not go white nationalist? There's nothing illegal about going white nationalist. I mean, I think I think this is the point, right? The, the problem with Tucker was not, I think, from Fox's perspective, that he was flirting with or in many ways simply embracing white nationalism. It's that he was being a jerk to his bosses. He was being a jerk to his subordinates. Uh, and he, you know, as part of the Dominion thing was... Uh, slandering a multi-billion dollar company. All of those things are problems, right? Either from an HR or legal perspective. Being a white nationalist isn't a problem. I mean, I'm not into it. We're not into it, but it's totally fine. And neither and again, are major if, corporations paying the ad revenue. The which network. Is, yes, which, which is a hugely, hugely important part of the story. So the Wall Street Journal reported that, no, seriously, Alan, this is like that, that, Ad revenue on Tucker's show was way down because people did not want to add it. So it's if you watch his show, all the ads were like my pillow. Like that was actually a problem for the network. Yeah, so, sorry, I, I wasn't I wasn't shaking my head because I don't think ad revenue issues are important. Um, it, it's that I'm actually not convinced that um, the dynamics are as simple as that, right? I mean, you know, there is obviously it's a different story, right? But you know, Bud Light came in for this sort of right wing buzzsaw oh because God. they sent like a personalized can to a, a trans influencer, and then everyone in the right freaked out. But but here's the thing, right? It worked. Right. But did ultimately fire the media people who were in charge of what was a pretty, frankly, not that interesting, like inclusion campaign. Like it was not, uh, you know, it was it was very corporate inclusion, which is to say, I'm actually not sure that the right doesn't increasingly have sort of as much sway over corporate America and corporate America spending habits as historically, or at least in the last kind of 10 years, the the, the left has. And so all, all, all I'm saying is that I'm not sure that the ad revenue thing is as powerfully an issue that kind of goes against the right as maybe it used to. I think at this point, maybe the the right has more more. 
Wait, but, I think but the Bud Light campaign is a is a poor data point and one of them to make that argument. But you could be right. Maybe that's the maybe it's the beginning of a trend. Um, but I'd be a little surprised. I mean, trans issues are, uh, you know, unfortunately, just a highly divisive issue that gets people heated up. And Bud Light, I think, I suspect it's a particularly vulnerable product that they're selling in the market they're trying to sell to. Uh, so I, I I'm not sure that that's right. Whereas you know. Race baiting and election denying just seems to be much broader campaigns um, to push back on that. But but I take your point. I mean, like you know, there there it's possible there may be countervailing pressures there as well. You know, I I do think that maybe the key takeaway from this, I think we all more or less agree on this, is that this doesn't actually change anything for Fox News. The proof of the pudding of Fox News actually you know changing the way it does business, which it might have to do if it keeps facing defamation lawsuits because Tucker Carlson was not the only person. You could have cut Tucker Carlson entirely out of the Dominion lawsuit. They still would have won or would have a very compelling case. Yeah, I think that's really important. He's actually not a particularly significant figure. Exactly. It's just sensational because it got the most media attention because he himself is such a media vacuum um, that everybody just eyes turned to him. Not the most revealing or fundamentally problematic uh, disclosures that were not related to him in terms of the actual defamation claim. Um, and that's going to be true for future claims. So, you know, insofar as this is related, here's where I suspect, suspect it's mostly related. Timing. Because they couldn't fire Tucker till they figured out Dominion. But my guess is they decided to fire Tucker a while ago. And we're waiting for the matter to be resolved before they pull the trigger. What I don't understand, though, is then what about the Smartmatic lawsuit? It's a fair question. It just seems like that's so much further down the like, road for I mean, resolution. Can't, you can't, yes, you can't wait forever to fire Tucker. You, you just got to... Just, at some point, you got to tuck around and find out. Uh, why not fire Marita, Maria Bartiromo? She's the problem child. They already got rid of Lou Dobbs, but Maria Bartiromo is a huge, huge, huge source of the lies about Dominion and I believe about Smartmatic as well. So it, if it's if it's related to those suits, it doesn't totally make sense to me why they haven't gotten rid of her. Now, maybe you could say, well, the reason is that they need to wait until the Smartmatic suit is settled. Um, so I guess we'll see. Or I suspect like some of those people may just be a little more beholden and a little more malleable. Like well, some of the some of the aspects of Tucker's communications that were notable and that, again, reports are indicating there was much more of this and what we didn't see is that he's just a complete jerk to everyone and very obstinate and very much talks back and acts like he's the cock of the walk at Fox News. Uh, and that may have made him a particularly desirable target from a senior management perspective for, you know, an execution. Maria Bartiromo, other figures who are a little more marginal in terms of audience and uh, involvement, uh, even though they're central around these issues, may not have had the sway. Maybe they think they can curve them in other other ways. Or maybe if, you know, they really want to send a message with this, you start with Tucker. You don't start with the little ones. Um, and then you can figure out how to deal with the, other, the little ones in different ways along the road. Kind of makes sense to me. But honestly, who knows what's happening in the halls of Fox News Corporation? We will we will have to leave that to the historians. Well, one thing that we know that Fox will be covering is the Biden re-election campaign because that is apparently happening. Uh, Joe Biden announced this week he is planning to run for re-election. The octogenarian still has it um, and released a stirring little campaign video. Um, that has, you know, lots of pictures of American flags and Joe Biden smiling in his aviators and shaking hands with people. And I think does some interesting work in terms of connecting what are usually thought of as kind of, you know, kitchen table economic issues with issues like LGBT rights and abortion access. Um, so that I thought was was a little thought provoking. Um, but obviously there's been a lot of discussion among the Democratic Party about whether, you know, this is the man for the moment. He is obviously on the older side. Uh, how we should think about, you know, going into this campaign. Um, so we should talk about that. But we also wanted to touch on in this discussion how we should think about Biden's reelection campaign, you know, from a from a national security perspective, what this means in that context. Um, so, Ellen, let me turn it over to you to start. Yeah, I mean, so I, I, I don't know. I'm I'm just jaded. I hate all campaign media. I just I think it's all terrible. <laughs> you don't find it stirring. I don't find it stirring. Even the Bernie Sanders one that was set to Simon and Garfunkel. <sighs> I just I can't stand any of it. That being said, it was fine. It's a perfectly nice video. It's you know pretty unobjectionable. It's very Joe Biden, right? Which is you know I'm blue collar Joe from Scranton, and I have drifted a bit left over 
my time, but I am still fundamentally, you know, a uniter, not a divider kind of thing. Um, you know, I, I think that the obviously most notable part of it is that he is not shying away from the Trump Biden rematch. I mean, I think he is assuming that Trump will be the nominee. I think that continues to be the correct assumption. I think he's assuming that probably that's his best shot for re-election. I think that's also probably the correct assumption. And he is preparing for that. And, you know, I, I think he recognizes that you know, although making the election about Trump obviously has some problems to it, you know, Trump just is not um, you know, he is fundamentally a minoritarian candidate in, in American politics and in a uh, electorate that is closely divided and in, in which, you know, a three point victory is the closest you get to a landslide. There probably just are still enough independent minded voters who are just so repulsed by Trump and will continue to be so repulsed by Trump. You know, I, I mean, it's notable that literally as we are recording, uh, Jean Carroll has finished her testimony in the ongoing you know, sexual assault lawsuit uh, against Trump, right? Um, just to add to his long list of grotesque features that framing this as, you know, God, the third election in a row that is a referendum on Donald Trump is is the right way to go. And look, you know, based on the how the midterms went, based on Democrats' impressive showing, you know, when they tie things to Trump or when they tie things to sort of the more radical parts of of the you know Republican agenda, especially regarding reproductive rights, it's it's probably a pretty good strategy. You know, as to the question of of national security, because you know we are, after all, a national security podcast, not a pure horse race podcast. You know, I'm I'm curious what what you all think, but you know, I I think that that Biden's best argument is that he is a competent handler of national security issues. Um, obviously, that took a bit of a hit after the somewhat disastrous Afghan withdrawal, but I do think he has made up for that and then some with the very deft handling of the war in Ukraine and how effectively he's been able to sort of marshal the West in defending Ukraine. Um, the problem, of course, is that you're only as competent as your latest foreign policy crisis. So, you know, we were talking about Sudan. Uh, it's totally possible that within a month, this will have spiraled horribly out of control. And we'll, all we'll be talking about is Sudan and, you know, American involvement in that and the next quagmire. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's always hard to to say how national security will factor into these elections because it's so unpredictable. But I think so far there is a, a pretty good case to be made, again, especially if the alternative is, you know, I have a bigger nuclear button, Donald J. Trump. Yeah, I should also say the the campaign video starts with footage of January 6th. Um, so they're very, very much leaning into the kind of, you know, Biden will protect us from threats to our democracy framing. And with good reason. I mean, this has been the narrative for the Biden campaign really since before January 6th, right? Like this was the narrative in 2020 was that this is a recovery from a period where you've seen a presidency destroy a lot of our norms of good governance uh, on a variety of fronts. And we're going to rebuild that January 6th, then just fed into that existing narrative and now provides a pretty compelling, you know, narrative, one that doesn't have universal appeal, one that's appeal is heavily heavily weighted on the left, but not entirely. I do think there are still avenues on the right uh, and in some, among centrists particularly there that kind of pulls in. But I actually am not sure that's actually like the big focus. I, I heard there's a very good discussion of this on The Daily today and it fed into a couple other conversations I've heard um, that kind of led me convinced about how Biden and his supporters are likely thinking about this. And that is that at least if you look at current polling numbers uh, and particularly looking at 2020 results and kind of moving them forward, there's basically like three or four swing states in play, right? It's basically Arizona, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania being one that Biden won by a fairly strong margin, uh, you know, among swing states, but still kind of a dicey one towards the last minute. So I think maybe sometimes that falls in or out of the swing state column towards Democrats. But of those three remaining states – um, Democrats only really need to win one of them to actually pin down the presidency. And in those, we've seen Georgia, where we've seen Democratic Senate candidates win twice now, um, you know, once in 2020 and then once in the more recent election, with Raphael Warnock, which is pretty impressive, uh, something that for, you know, not not something we would think of associated with Georgia politics 10 or 20 years ago. And then in Wisconsin, we've seen a statewide, highly contested, highly funded, perhaps most important 
race for a state Supreme Court judge uh, just in the last month or two come over with strong, strong favorite for the Democrat, uh, I think over 10 percent. Um, who pulled it off um, or for the progressive candidate. I actually don't recall whether they're actually partisan or not for the one very clearly speaking about abortion. And I kind of think that that's a big issue and that there's two big issues kind of playing in here that played a, to some extent Biden's strength or at least the Democrat strength. One is abortion. That's something that probably all Democrats could capitalize on. Um, but another one is that Biden also, as, as we know from the 2020 election campaign, is is very good at speaking to African-American Democratic voters which is a huge deal in Georgia and in Pennsylvania. Um, and that was a big reason he was able to ultimately rise and take the nomination in 2020 um, because of his very successful showing uh, late in the game um, in the South. And so I kind of suspect that's a source of strength for him. And a reason why, well, if you combine all that together, if we're showing recent victories in the midterms, we perform, outperformed our expectations. We won previously in Wisconsin and Georgia, two of the states we need to, Biden has pulled together this kind of uniquely broad constituency that's still holding together pretty well. I don't think anyone really thinks a meaningful candidate's going to run against him or really even express serious doubts about him. The age thing is his only weakness. And it's not one that Trump's super well positioned to attack him to because Trump is also relatively elderly. All the electoral logic kind of falls into place to say like, yeah, let's run this one again, run the strategy again and bring it back. And it makes a lot of sense to me. And Biden has the added venue of, of when you're running against Donald Trump – being a source of stability of relatively effective governments or at least quiet, not like big, visibly controversial governance for the last four years, I think is a nice contrast and a contrast that I suspect Democrats want to lean into. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably right. It's also worth noting that generally I don't think it increases your chances of winning in the general election if you've been indicted. Uh, much less if you've been indicted multiple times, which m may well happen to Trump by the time that the campaign really begins. I think the American dream is that is that you can be indicted and then still be president. I think that's isn't that what our forefathers wanted. Eugene Eugene Debs walked so that Donald Trump <laughs> could run. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. I'm the idea of another Biden Trump mashup is kind of making me cringe deep in my soul. But on another hand, it. There's definitely like a third Donald Trump run for the presidency <laughs> is in a way like, is that what we all deserve? Maybe or is, are we just suffering for something that we all did wrong in a past life? You know, I, I will say in terms of where we see foreign policy coming out in this race and national security more generally, other than I think we're going to see a very strong trend. It's going to be three basically fronts. You're going to see the democracy January 6th domestic security front. Um, the Biden administration is going to push. And you're going to see the right push a version of that as well, right? That's depending on who the nominee is. But if it is Trump, particularly a, you know, stolen 2020 election, a lot of claims of electoral fraud, I, you know, put that in the same kind of competing bucket of direct loggerheads narrative. Then you're going to have Afghanistan, um, which is defensive terrain for Biden. Uh, you know, it did not go well. But it's a tricky one for Trump to attack him on. Um, harder for Trump than for Ron DeSantis, honestly, um, because there is a lot of ways the Biden administration can and will and should shift blame to the Trump administration for the arrangements at, that Trump administration negotiated and that they inherited but decided to try and follow through. Um, the Biden administration has not been very good at this, in my opinion. Um, you know, they have a messaging problem around Afghanistan that they need to work on. Um, they seem very strident on defending the strategic decision to withdraw, ignoring that's not actually what people are complaining about. Um, people are complaining about the process and the steps taken to withdraw and the humanitarian consequences of that. You know, that is a, a, a you, it's not so easy just to shift the debate to this terrain of whether withdrawal is a good idea or not, which is a debate they'd rather be having. Instead, you have to somehow acknowledge and express remorse for the humanitarian costs, even if you're going to stand by your decision, which is more or less what I think they want to do and, and is probably the right position. The third angle is going to be Ukraine. And this is going to be a really tricky one, as we talked about before, because as the election pulls along, Ukraine's the biggest success story Biden has. It's arguably the thing that makes him look conventionally presidential. And I tend to think a lot of foreign policy issues kind of blend into optics and this idea about who looks most presidential and helping the country look most strong uh, and most effective. And Ukraine is that in spades so far. 
But it's going to be a rough road ahead potentially. We see an offensive coming up that some people are supposedly in the administration raise questions about or concerns about with the Ukrainians, certainly a high-risk, high-reward venture. And we see Republicans in Congress facing more political incentives and showing signs they're willing to walk down the route of pushing back on assistance to Ukraine potentially in serious ways um, in the next few months. Their biggest opportunity is still a few months away, but it's coming. And so that's going to be a really contested terrain in a way that I think will have real foreign policy ramifications. Um, I don't think that's news to many folks who've been following this. I'm sure it's not news to the Ukrainians. But uh, for those of us who've been following the Ukraine conflict very closely, I think this is a a new front of it um, that we also have to keep our eye on. Well, folks, we are out of time to discuss today. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to think over in the week to come until we are back in your mobile devices of choice. Quinta, what do you have for us for object lesson this week? I would like to recommend an essay in the Columbia Journalism Review by Wesley Lowry. It's called A Test of the News, Objectivity, Democracy, and the American Mosaic. Um, And it is a take on some of the debates that have been roiling journalism and uh, other sort of public-facing fields in recent years about what we mean when we ask for objectivity by public commentators and by journalists specifically um, and how to seek that in a responsible way. Um, This traces back in some form to a long-running argument between uh, Lowry and Marty Baron, the former executive editor of The Washington Post, and I just found it, uh, you know, separate from the some of the sort of invective going back and forth. Um, I found this a really thought-provoking, careful, nuanced exploration of the issues that presents an interesting model for sort of how to think about these things going forward um, without shying away, importantly, from nuance and critical thinking. So I definitely, if you're interested in these issues, recommend at least reading it and kind of taking a moment to think through what it's putting on the table. Alan, what do you have for us this week? So my, uh, my object lesson is the new television show, The Diplomat on Netflix, which stars Carrie Russell, who admittedly, I think I've had a crush on ever since Felicity. I just love her so much. Uh, stars Carrie Russell as the new U.S. ambassador to England and hijinks ensue it's fabulous it, it it's like it is kind of a political thriller but there's like a, a little bit of a veep element as well and i just get the best and fans of ratsec 1.0 i think will really appreciate this i get like a real um tammy wittis crossed with susan hennessy vibe from <laughs> carrie russell's character and i mean that in obviously the best way possible um so you should all watch it and you should tweet at me uh, as to whether I got that right. It is just delightful. Such a good show. Uh, yeah, really very entertaining. I thought it was kind of a reboot of Madam Secretary, if I'm being honest, and rolled my eyes a little bit. But now I may check it out. We'll see. I do yeah, like her. I don't know. We'll I, I, did, I watched a couple of Madam Secretaries, and I, I didn't love it, though. Maybe I should give it another shot. I, I really like this. I'll just, just the relationship between Carrie Russell's character and and the husband character. It's It's so good. It's The so husband good. who's like based on Richard Holbrook, right? I, it's so good. That's that's interesting. That made me yeah, watch yeah, right there. It's, it is that that was actually yeah, the, yeah. The, the the review that I read that made me like kind of sit up. Like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I thought you were gonna. When I saw you was written in our little planning doc. I thought you were gonna endorse the Diplomat, the very good newsletter written about uh, East Asian geopolitics and national <laughs> security, which I also would like to recommend for anybody curious. It's a great daily read for those trying to keep up with what's and, happening. And in lead, lead yeah, of course, there's lead, lead Diplomat, which I gotta say, I lived in. I lived in. DC for or years and never, never, never managed to get myself a Le Diplomat reservation. So I still, it's just Le Dip when you live oh, here. Le Dip, is it? I'm told I'm just, a, I'm just, a, I'm just a country mouse from Minnesota. I don't, I don't know you all these big cities. I've actually never eaten there either. There's better food on 14th The only Street. dip I know I keep between my teeth oh, and my cheek. Gross. I can make my own mole free oh. for the record. There you go. Um, well, folks, for my object lesson, I'm going to pull an old trick and return to another live concert I had the opportunity to go to, which apologies, I keep doing this, but they were so good and I highly recommend it. And that is the band, The Fruit Bats. It is a band that I frankly has been on my radar for like 20 years and I never really zoomed in on them except for a couple of singles. I like their studio work. I enjoyed it. A couple of the albums I really like, 
But I went to their live show. Uh, my wife and I almost backed out because we had babysitter problems. We weren't going to go. We kind of like sprinted over to 930 Club, caught them just as they started. And I got to say, it was a phenomenal live show. It's like one of these amazing moments that reminds you why you watch live music and how bands who have been together and performing live for a really long time just know how to put together a live show that is just different and often substantially way better than their studio recorded work. Not that to slight the studio recorded work, just because it's such a more holistic experience. And it was phenomenal. And it was like an early six o'clock show that was over by nine uh, at the 930 Club full of old dads yeah, like that, me. That's, uh, just to be clear, that's the reason you liked it. Because it's any show that ends at nine is a show that dads in their it, late 30s like you and me can get behind. hurt, if I'm being honest. It is really nice because <laughs> I can then go home or like go have a drink and still be in bed by 11. Uh, we can have dinner at 5.30 like God intended. Oh, it's, it's great. It is honestly amazing. But I will say, I do think despite, maybe it's the circumstances, but I really enjoyed the show and I really loved it. So check out The Fruit Bats. I know they have a new album out that I haven't actually gotten to listen to. I've been listening to all their old stuff. But um, worth checking out. Highly recommended. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. So be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes for our written work and with the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. In addition, be sure to follow us on Twitter at RETL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. Also, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Shalin of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Batcha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.